Hey guys, I hope you're doing great today and I can't wait to bring you the show. But before I do, I just wanna make a quick request. If you're listening to the show and you're getting good value and you're enjoying the content and you feel that it's valuable, if you could just take a second and go and give me a rating and review in whatever platform you listen, whether it be Apple or Google or uh, Spotify, whatever it is, just go and give me a rating and review. That would be very appreciated. All right, guys, let's dive in. Well, I went down to the planning and zoning office, showed them my five-acre plat and said, I think I can subdivide this using this loophole. They said, there's no loophole like that. I said, well, look at it a little closer. And the lady could not believe it. She said, I've been working here for decades. Nobody has ever come up with this loophole that you found. And you're right. And we need to close that loophole. But until then, yes, you can <laughs> subdivide. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right. Thank you for joining me on Just Our Real Estate. I appreciate you being here. Guys, if you haven't given me a rating and review yet, wherever you listen to podcasts, please do that. Go out and do it now. It means everything to me as a podcaster. I really, 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 really appreciate it anyone who leaves me the rating review, it helps me get found, which is ultimately what I want, right? As a podcaster, I want more people to find me so I can help more people. So please go do that. And in exchange for you doing that, I promise to keep bringing you incredible interviews, incredible content with some of the best and brightest out there in our industry. And today, boy, is a shining example of that. I have Paul Moore on the podcast. He is a former Ford Motor Company uh, worker. He co-founded a staffing firm uh, where uh, he was able to sell that to a publicly traded company. He began investing in real estate, founded multiple investments and development companies. He's appeared on HGTV, uh, eventually completed over 85 real estate investments and exits, including a large multifamily project. He is the author of The Perfect Investment, Creating Enduring Wealth from Historic Shift in Multifamily Housing, and also the book Storing Up Profits, Capitalize on America's Obsession with Stuff by Investing in Self-Storage. He is the founder and managing partner of Wells Capital, a real estate private equity firm, and has contributed to Fox Business and is a regular contributor of Bigger Pockets. He was a lot of fun to interview. We talked about so much stuff among them uh, and all the things that he's invested in. If he could only invest in one thing for the rest of his life, what would it be? So you can hear that answer. It was very interesting and not what I expected. And uh, also, he talked a little bit about inflation. That's a hot topic right now as we sit and uh, and how his his view on inflation as far as, as, far as real estate investing goes. And uh, I'll just give you a little teaser. It is insanely positive and insanely hopeful. So... Uh, Stay tuned and listen closely for that. Guys, grab a pen and paper, whatever, sit down. You're going to be really uh, rained on with some incredible gold bombs here. Uh, so without any further ado, I give you Paul Moore. Paul, thank you for doing this. I appreciate you being on the show and welcome to Just Our Real Estate. It's great to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. Uh, so much to talk about. My goodness. And just in, in researching you and looking at, at the things that you're uh, very comfortable and, and knowledgeable of and things that you've done, my goodness, we could talk about a million different things. And there were some things that surprised me uh, in here uh, about you that I want to hit on too because I'm, I'm excited about it. Um, but before that, I, I've had the luxury of really digging into you. My audience has not. So why don't you give them, if you don't mind, the you know the, the five-minute 
10 minute background story of, of kind of before real estate, all that, like what did you do before, what was your life like before real estate and how did you, and why did you get into real estate? Yeah. So um, I actually had an engineering degree, which was my first mistake. And then I got <laughs> an MBA at Ohio State. Sorry, Michigan fans. But I did move to Michigan. Uh, I actually worked at Ford Motor Company all around Metro Detroit in the headquarters of a certain division. And then uh, my buddy and I from Ohio State decided to start our own firm. We started a staffing company located in Troy, Michigan. And we had a great time doing that for a number of years. And then we sold it to a publicly traded firm. And I found myself at 34 years old with a couple million dollars, absolutely no sense of investing. I should have known. I had the books. I had resources. I didn't have podcasts, but I had all kinds of stuff I could have drawn on. But I moved to uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia to start a nonprofit organization, and I started flipping houses. Then we started flipping waterfront lots. Then we did ground up construction. And I learned something really important, Mike, that if you actually don't know how to tighten a doorknob on your own house, you probably shouldn't build a house. I don't know what you guys <laughs> think. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, that was actually a little bit of a disaster there. But I did a subdivision after that, and I thought, man, I would love to get into commercial real estate. I didn't know how. And speculation, I mean, excuse me, syndications. So I was speculating, by the way, a lot. That's why I wanted to throw that in. Okay. You know, investing is when your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. Speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. Yeah. And I thought I was a full-time investor, but I was a full-time speculator. Mm. I mean, more or less. Yeah. But anyway, um, 2010 rolled around. You know, we were still in the midst of the great financial crisis. So we invested in North Dakota in an oil and gas deal. Mm. And we ended up doing a multifamily and then another one after that. Mm. And that led to a hotel. And I was now involved in commercial real estate. And that led me to writing a book on multifamily investing and then later uh, expanding into doing uh, a number of commercial real estate funds for people who want to invest in commercial real estate, but they don't have the bandwidth to do it full-time. Yeah. So you were working for Ford for a while as an engineer. How long? Did, it doesn't sound like you did that very long, really. Yeah, I was at Ford for less than five years. I wasn't okay. really an engineer. I mean, I had the degree, but yeah. I mean, I was offering uh, operating in uh, the arena of operations and logistics for a bunch of warehouses around the country. Okay. And understanding that we're not bad-mouthing anybody, but I've talked about the automotive industry on this podcast before and how it just wasn't a good fit, right? I'm an entrepreneur stuck in a cubicle, basically. Um, didn't know it. Um, it was tough. Did you find working for a corporate entity like Ford difficult? I mean, you didn't stay very long, so obviously you didn't love it. But um, what was it that made you want to leave? I mean, you had a good, it sounds like you had a good job, probably yeah. well-paying. Why, why leave? You know, about a month after I got there, um, my business partner actually was the controller on the Ford Taurus. I mean, right out of college. Mm. And um, he was bored to death. And he would he said that they did a head count at 6 or 6.30 p.m. to make sure everybody was still there working. Ah. Yet he said he was done with his work by like 10 in the morning. And so he said, I just don't see a future in the corporate world. And I got to thinking, yeah. And on top of that, in my division, 
I might get transferred to any of eight cities from LA to New, New York. Mm. And I didn't want to. And yeah. so we both started scheming about how we could start a company. And uh, we started a bunch of little things on the side that actually didn't go anywhere until he got into the staffing firm and I joined him. Okay. So you so, guys ran the staffing company for a while. It sounds like you liked it. I think you said you enjoyed that that business. Why sell oh, it? I, I like, you know, I even liked Ford. I just yeah. didn't see the future yeah. in a cubicle. Um, but uh, no, the staffing company was great. It's just that Wall Street got really excited about the specific type of staffing we did. Okay. In year um, 1996, seven, eight, they a bunch of companies went public, and one of them had more cash than you know they knew what to do with, and yeah. so they wanted a Michigan office, and so they bought us out. Okay. All right, and then you went from there. That's when you kind of that is shortly thereafter you got in into real estate. What was the first? Uh, remind me, I think you just said it, but what was the first thing you did in real estate? What was your first like, you know, toe in the water? Yeah, my friend and I were. Uh, we heard that you could buy houses for like fifty cents on the dollar at the courthouse steps, hmm. and so we intentionally did not take any money with us at all, no checkbook, nothing, and we went just to watch a courthouse step auction. And the first house rolled out at thirty-two thousand dollars. We, we had already comped it out at sixty-five thousand. Mm. It looked like it needed no work. The appliances were all there. We peeked through the windows, and so <laughs> we we actually were the only people on the steps. And we were like, "Wait, what?" And so we <laughs> pleaded with the lady to go to Taco Bell and let us buy her lunch while we went ran to BB&T Bank and got a cashier's check for 3400 bucks to put as a down payment. Yeah. We bought that house as a flip house and we thought this is easy. We made like $20,000 like that. Yeah. And I thought, "Oh, I can do this like every week." Well, we found out it was a lot harder to scale than we thought. Yeah. And what year was this by the way you found this house? This 2000. First in 2000. Okay. So just to give people context who lived through 08 and you know and all the, the whole thing, right? The rise and the fall, just to give them some context. So when you started, it sounds like the speculating part of your business where you started building from the ground up and doing that kind of thing, that led you into the 08, 09 and everything sort of crashing. How much were you speculating when everything sort of went south? You know... I had two and a half million dollars in debt. I had a million and a half in the bank in 97. Exactly a decade later to the month, I had two and a half million in debt. And mm. a lot of that, even though it was tied to real estate, it was sort of speculative. Here's an example. I bought a five acre waterfront lot for, I think it was like $800,000 thinking that I could convince them. Oh, I can't believe I thought this. I was thinking I could convince them to bring like a public road. It was a private road. And I thought, oh, the public road's going to be here in a year. So, or, so we'll just go ahead and go ahead and be able to subdivide this into five, acre, five, one acre lots, each worth 400,000 in about a year. Well, like three years went by and there was no sign of a public road that was speculating Yeah, because I was speculating on the future that didn't happen. Yeah. And I actually was able to subdivide that into five one-acre lots using a loophole in the law, and I did sell them. But that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Yeah. What do you, how do you feel about speculation now? nowadays, right? 2021 currently, would people say, hey, I want to get into real estate and I want to... And they, they start talking to you about something that is speculating. What, what, what are your general thoughts about that? 
Yeah. You know, Warren Buffett was asked about this and, you know, he obviously has a lot of strong opinions on that. He believes in investing versus speculating. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm actually writing a book on Buffett's principles as applied to real estate investing. Mm -hmm. And Buffett, you know, was, is really big on getting rich slowly, getting rich with boring stuff, looking at stuff, you know, in ways people don't look at it. Yeah. I really don't like speculating in the sense that, I mean, like, look, if you roll your dice, if you play double or nothing long enough, you're going to end up on nothing at some point. And then what will you have left to double? Yeah. Paul Samuelson said this really well. He was the treasury secretary. No, that's not right. I, I messed that up. He was a Nobel Peace Prize winner and an economist. And he said, Investing should be boring. True investing should be like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. I, I could not agree more. And I say that I've said that, but specifically about house flipping, you watch these shows and it's like this, you know, everything's chaos every week. It's like their estimated renovation is 50% of what it ends up being and just all this craziness. And it's just not the way it should be. Good investing, and of any kind, and to your point, is is a little bit more predictable, a little bit more boring. Um, you mentioned being over two million dollars in debt. Like, I think you said two and a half or two point eight. What was at a high level? What was your 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 mode of getting out of that? What was your what was the process? What did that look like? We actually gave our way out of debt. What does that mean? Okay, I, I thought I would just get that blank look from you. So. <laughs> um, no, actually, we uh, one of my heroes in history is a guy named George Mueller. George Mueller was this hellion in Germany in 1800s who became a saint when he moved to England. I don't know how that worked. And uh, he took care of 10,000 orphans during his lifetime in total. And he had these radical views on generosity, radical views on raising money. He didn't believe in ever asking for money. He just thought, you know, that if he did the right things, you know, if he invested wisely, that the money would come. And it always did. He raised like almost half a billion dollars in today's dollars, um, all by, you know, not marketing or anything like that. Well, he didn't believe in debt. <laughs> I read his biography and around that time. And basically I thought, what would he do if he was two and a half million dollars in debt? And I really thought he'd do something completely outside the box, radical. So I called my friends together and, I, and my wife and kids and said, hey, guys, our back's up against the wall. My business partner retired right about then, handed me all his debt and all his assets as well, including half of that five-acre lot I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And um, I said, we're, we're, we're going to go bankrupt unless something really crazy happens. And so we actually said, we're going to start giving generously. We really believe in whatever you want to call it, karma or the law of giving and receiving or yep. sowing and reaping, whatever you want to call it. And we started giving pretty radically uh, January 1st, 2008, not knowing we were hurtling down into the biggest black hole in modern U.S. economic history. Yeah. And uh, we started giving radically. And then four weeks later, I got this light bulb idea from an offhanded comment that a real estate developer made about how to find that loophole in the law. Well, I went down to the planning and zoning office, showed them my five-acre plat and said, I think I can subdivide this using this loophole. They said, there's no loophole like that. I said, well, look at it a little closer. And the lady could not believe it. She said, I've been working here for decades. Nobody has ever come up with this loophole that you found. And you're right. 
and we need to close that loophole. But until then, yes, you can subdivide. (laughs) Well, we were still in the middle of this great financial crisis, and we were still at a time when nobody was buying waterfront lots. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I sold four of those five waterfront lots right in the worst months of the crisis in the fall of 2008, and the fifth one about eight months later, and I ended up completely debt-free. Wow. Wow. That's a, that is amazing, actually, because that time was tough. Because even if you're an investor, and, and sometimes people know to, you know, you sort of have to run in the direction people are saying to get away from. The, the fact of the matter is the media was screaming to everybody, get out. Like real estate's crashing, like get out, right? right? Everyone I knew, and that, I started right when, right around 08, and, and I didn't know what I didn't know. So, right. Like I was too naive to be afraid, and I was, too uneducated to take full advantage of the situation, but at yeah. least I got in, right? But all my friends and family were like, you're crazy. Like the, I just watched the news and they said, real estate, real estate bad, like get out of real estate, yeah, you know? Right, right, right. And so, and so that's kind of where I was at, but that, that is amazing. So you, you, uh, you started off like that on the courthouse steps, right? And then you did some speculating. I know you have moved and I'm, I'm sort of moving quickly. I feel this sense of urgency because I'm looking at all the things I really want to cover with you. And I know that we have some finite time, but you got into, ultimately got into multifamily. Talk to me about how you, like your entrance to multifamily. And I know nowadays, and maybe I'm wrong, I don't want to put words in your mouth and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's more like commercial and storage, which is, I guess, commercial, but you're not doing like apartments or small multifamily. It's something different. Did you ever do that small multifamily apartment thing? Is that something that's part of your your portfolio? Yeah, we, we did like a four unit and a couple duplexes mm-hmm. and all that. But I mean, overall, um, I, I hired a mentor in 2014. And I can't say enough about the importance of having masterminds, good mentors. I spent about $25,000 with a one-year mentoring program. And they convinced me to ditch a six-unit apartment building I was getting ready to purchase and stick with their program for a few months. And I'd realized why I should do like 80 units and up. Yeah. And I did. And I'm so glad I did. That's that's I've heard that. And as a guy who admittedly, I, I have not gotten into multifamily, but tell me why, if you can, like in a, in a nutshell or like the, the cliff note version, because I'm sure it's a long discussion, but why not buy a 6, 10, 15 unit? Why 80 and up? Why, why is that a thing? My mentor had 100 houses around Cincinnati and he said that managing one 100-unit apartment building was so much easier and less expensive. And so he sold those off. He said, look, I'd rather have one set of roofs, one lawn, one property manager, one location. Uh, you can get a professional property manager like a company like you know Village Green or Pinnacle to come in and manage it. You get an on-site manager. You get, you know, much more control over the tenants. I mean, mm. you know, you know, if they're starting a meth house rather than like my friend from Michigan, who know, he had a house like eight states away and he got a call one day and said, your house is a meth house. I mean, you probably know him, Brian Hamrick. And uh, so, I mean, look, uh, there's just so many advantages, so many economies of scale, way better mortgages. You know, you can get a 3% Fannie or Freddie loan. You can get an FHA loan with a 35-year term on it. Uh, There's all kinds of benefits to going to higher scale. 
Okay. If someone is looking at, let's just say they have some money to invest and they want to get in the game actively, not not just as like a syndication, but they want to actually start doing this for themselves. And they could go apartment building route. They could go self-storage. They could go other commercial stuff. What what are your thoughts on those on those particular types of investments? Man, I am so glad you asked. I wish we had another half hour for this question alone, but let me just tell you this. 93% of multifamily above 50 units are owned and operated by corporations who have typically rung the value out. They've already done the counters and cabinets and paint and lighting, and they've already maximized what the property could be. The problem is right now, as we speak, the sales prices on these are extremely high, just like mm. they are for flip homes and every other thing, you know, in real estate yep. in the US right now. Yeah. Well, the problem is, um, if the value's already been wrung out, then you have to, you're going to be running on that thin margin, hoping and praying for inflation. If inflation doesn't come, or if there is a bump down in the economy, that thin margin is going to go to zero, especially if you have like 75% leverage. So I personally like investing in assets that have a mom and pop ownership base. And here's what I mean. Yeah. Mobile home parks, 44,000 mobile home parks in the US, 85 to 90% owned by mom and pop owners. When they sell, they're getting twice as much money as they ever dreamed for an asset that's very mediocre. Mm -hmm. If you go in as a professional operator, and if you go in and significantly upgrade the value, like, like you can do all kinds of things that are beyond the scope of this call, uh, to increase the income and therefore increase the value, Mike, then what you can do is you can, uh, you can refinance that and take your risk off the table, or you can operate with a very high debt service coverage ratio, which mm. means it's an income of the ratio of the, it's a ratio of the income to the debt payment, which, you know, the higher that gets, the more margin of safety you have if there's a jolt in the economony. Yeah. I like that. Uh, yeah. And self-storage and mobile home parks have more of those type of assets than any other class I've seen so far. Yeah. And you run a fund. Uh, is it just one fund or is it like a series of funds? I know where you do this kind of yeah, investing. It's a series of funds. We're, okay. we're about to open number four. Okay. And is it, is it all mobile home self-storage or is there more diversity than that? Yeah. So, so far it's been mobile home parks and self-storage. We are always open to buying apartments if we can find deals or investing mm -hmm. in apartments, I should say. And in the future, we're going to be opening it up to other asset types, including senior living, RV parks, and who knows, maybe even ATM machines. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Um, you've also written a couple of books. And, and again, we could talk for hours, obviously, right? Uh, but the first one that I, I have here that I want to talk about is the perfect the perfect investment creating enduring wealth from the historic shift to multifamily housing. What is this book about, and why did you write this book? Yeah, so I was shocked when I actually went through this mentoring program on multifamily. We'd already owned a couple multifamily properties and didn't know what we were doing. It just turned out really, really well because we were in the oil boom times in North Dakota, but. Um, when I found out the actual mechanics of why it works so well, when I found out the actual math behind it, when I found out that there was a value formula, which is the value equals the net operating income divided by the cap rate or the rate of return on the yeah. property, 
I was pretty amazed. Furthermore, when I found out the demographics of uh, rental real estate in the U.S. were so strong, I just felt like, man, this is like the perfect investment. And I told my friend that, and he helped me name the book uh, because he said, you know, uh, this book is really describing if you want to get into real estate, this is the perfect combination of factors. And so that's why I called it that. Now, I will put a caveat in five years later. Uh, that book's still selling, but I will, and I believe everything I wrote in the book. But the perfect investment's not perfect if you can't buy it at a good price. Yeah. And yeah. we're finding that multifamily is really hard to find right now, as I mentioned a few minutes ago. Yeah. And you answered a question I was going to ask you how long ago you wrote the book. Um, and then <clears throat> the next one was uh, the next book you wrote, uh, Storing Up Profits, and it's about self storage. Was that one written second or was that, did that pre Yeah, Storing Up Profits was written in uh, 2020. Okay. okay. And um, we're waiting for the publisher to give me a release date. We expect Bigger Pockets Publishing to publish it uh, oh, okay. this fall. No kidding. You're going to publish through Bigger Pockets. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah uh, those guys are obviously uh, behemoths uh, and they do a lot of books for sure. Um, so self-storage for folks who don't know, and I've, I've had a few self-storage people on, but tell me why self-storage. What's the advantage? What's the what should people know about that specific market that it makes it exciting as opposed to like apartments or you know any yeah. other commercial yeah well mike if i own an apartment building and i raised your rent from a thousand dollars a month by six percent you'd be signing up for a one year at sixty dollars a month at seven hundred twenty dollars you might leave rather than pay that seven hundred twenty dollars but if I have a self-storage facility and I raise your rent 6% from $100 to $106, chances are you're not going to spend a weekend, rent a U-Haul, get your <laughs> yeah. friends together, right. buy a beer to yeah. move your stuff down the street to save $6 a month, especially when you're on a month-to-month -month lease and you have the usually mistaken uh, notion that you're going to be moving your stuff out of there in the next few weeks anyway when you get a free day. Yeah. Now. That's one reason we really like it. So the pricing is really inelastic. It's not subject, you know, people might grumble a little bit, but typically they're not going to move for a little price increase. Second, sure. there's a lot of value adds. You can go into a self-storage facility. Adding U-Haul alone is a big one. You can add U-Haul. You can add, you know, selling retail items like locks, boxes, tape, scissors, uh, late fees, insurance. You can expand like a, a lot of self-storage facilities might have three acres of units and another three acres vacant. You can park RVs on, Yeah. you can park trucks on it, you can build more buildings on it. Um, there's a lot of value add. I mean, let me look at one value add alone. So U-Haul. Uh, now I'm going to do the math on this and I'm going to do it on the fly. So it might not be perfect, but let's say okay. I bought a $3 million self-storage facility and it was in an area that didn't have a whole bunch of U-Haul. $3 million, that's $2 million in debt, for my example, mm -hmm. and a million in cash, so a million in equity. Okay. Now, you put a U-Haul in, and let's say you could get $3,000 a month in commissions from U-Haul, which is doable. All right, that's $36,000 a year. Mm -hmm. My mom always told me I was good at math. Hell yeah. And the $36,000 a year. Now, the value formula that I mentioned earlier in commercial real estate is 
the net operating income, so 36,000 in new income, mm-hmm. divided by the cap rate, let's say that's 6%, so I divide it by 0.06, I just added $600,000 to the value of that facility. Wait a minute, I just signed a contract with U-Haul, that wasn't so hard. I might have just added $600,000 to the value. Well, 600,000 into 3 million, that's a 20% increase in the value, I think. Yeah. But it's a 60% increase in the equity because yeah. leverage multiplies your returns. Well, if you can add 60%, you know, to the value of your equity and then turn around and sell it a year later for a 60% profit, that's not bad. Yeah. That's one of many, many examples of why I love self-storage. If you had to pick one one thing to invest in for the rest of your life, would it be self-storage? Is that is that the winner? Man, that's the best question anyone's asked me on a podcast in a long time. Bam. Um, that's a quotable moment. Thanks, there we go. <laughs> okay. That's good. Um, I would definitely invest in mobile home parks because there are 44,000. They've had a bad reputation for years. Who wants to invest in trailer parks? Yeah. Um, and they are just kind of hitting their stride with a bunch of institutionals like Black, you know, Blackstone and others like wanting to invest in these. They're just getting famous. The debt on them is amazing, the, the debt that you can get. Yeah. And here's the big reason. It's the only asset class I've ever seen in my life that has a shrinking supply but an increasing demand every year. Hmm. That's amazing. Is there, just like apartment buildings, when you said your mentor taught you 80 units and more, what, is there rules of thumb that way with, with trailer parks? Or yeah, mobile home you parks? know, Mike, there's not a definite rule of thumb, but a lot of mobile home park operators want to buy 100 lots and up. I, okay. I will say it's a little subjective. Yeah. Um, one of the goals with this is to pull together a bunch of mobile home parks and then sell it to an institutional investor, oh, uh, okay. like a, you know, a REIT or Blackstone. In fact, one of my friends sold his portfolio to Blackstone about two years ago. He won't tell me how much he got for it. It was undisclosed. But uh, at any rate, that is a great strategy. If you buy from mom and pops, you upgrade, you combine, and then you sell to a REIT. Interesting. That's I've never heard that strategy before, but it makes total sense. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. I love that. Um, all right, I, I, this isn't really like the like the uh, you know fire round or whatever, but there's definitely some stuff I want to talk to you about that's in my notes here. Um, it, you mentioned this before we hopped on, and it's, it's something that's kind of hot right now. And I do want to hit it before I forget because it's not directly in front of me. I have it down below here, but. Inflation. People are are really concerned right now that inflation is really going to uh, catch fire, so to speak. Um, I've heard the words Armageddon be used on certain, <laughs> with certain people in the media. What is what is what do you see happening? Obviously, nobody has a crystal ball, but what do you see happening, and how does that affect us as real estate investors potentially? I got to tell you. <clears throat> Any of us who grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s remember the horrors of inflation. Uh, Jimmy Carter, you know, was president. He was the first president since Herbert Hoover that was ejected from office midterm. And, you know, Ronald Reagan was his replacement. And Ronald Reagan said, inflation is as violent as a mugger, as frightening as an armed robber, and as deadly as a hitman. And so we all thought inflation was always bad. Mm. But here's the thing. Inflation plus very high interest rates was disastrous and created stagflation. 
uh, Paul Volcker from the Federal Reserve had the courage to do that, to, to stop the inflation. And I think he did the right thing. But I'll tell you, inflation in the face of low interest rates can be a goldmine for real estate investors because if, you know, we only have a limited time here, but I'll tell you, if you can have inflation and you can have, you can buy a fixed cost, you can create a fixed cost in your company or your property. And that is the bank debt for a long time mm-hmm. at a historically low rate, then you, that margin increases a lot over the years. And your largest cost is fixed, even though utilities and maintenance might go up with inflation, which it would, um, your largest cost typically is your bank debt, and it's not going to go up. So if you can lock it in for a long time, whether it's on your private residence, an apartment building, um, you know, a, a bunch of single family homes, you can make a ton of money. I'll tell you, there's something called the Cantillion effect. The Cant- Richard Cantillion was a economist three or 400 years ago, 300, and he said that those closest to the money are the ones who benefit most from inflation. And those closest to the money is the Federal Reserve and big government. Well, they're both on the side of inflation for reasons beyond the scope of our podcast right now, but they are pushing inflation. They're going to get filthy rich from this. And I'm telling you and your audience, you can get wealthy if you think like they do. And that is getting low rate debt, locking it in for a long time and letting inflation do its work. Wow. That's the most optimistic uh viewpoint of of inflation I've ever heard, but logical. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. That's a it's not a, trying to scare the the heck out of people, but it's it's a real strategy for trying to, to capitalize on something that is is going to or not going to happen. It's not under our control necessarily. Um there's something here I want to talk about because I would really be bummed if we didn't talk about this before we we stop this. Uh, how did you set up your company to generate funding to fight human trafficking and rescue its victims? I think this is important. And I, before you answer, I just want to say this. I talked to a lot of people on this podcast, and uh, most of them, if not all of them, are insanely successful in their chosen uh, business or, or whatever they're doing. Um, but I think it's, it, I always, my heart feels warmed when I'm researching and finding that people actually do, um, things that give back that save. I, I have supported organizations that fight human trafficking. Um, it's super important in my opinion, in my, in my life to, to help with that stuff. So when I saw this, I'm like, oh, I'm definitely asking. I love it. It makes me so happy. It's probably the most heinous thing on the face of the earth. Uh, and so how, how did that work out for you? What did you exactly do there? Mike, about five years ago, a lady at my church pointed out that if you took the record profits, not the average, the record profits from Apple, General Motors, Nike, and Starbucks, add those together, triple that number. She said double, but it's triple, triple that number. That's the approximate revenues generated by human trafficking every year. And I like to believe, Mike, that if I lived in the 1800s, I'd be fighting slavery. Slavery, I'd be an abolitionist. I'd like to believe if I was an adult in the 1960s, I'd be fighting for civil rights. Well, this is a civil right. It is slavery. Uh-huh. And it's actually happening right under our noses around the world. In fact, since you and I hit play or, or record on this podcast, dozens and dozens and dozens of people have been sold into slavery. In fact, close to 100 And so this is a huge deal and the effects are unthinkable. 
And so I just want to do what I can to let the world know that this is a serious problem. It's happening right in front of us. And I want to do whatever I can to raise funds and awareness to stop this evil and also to rescue its victims. Yeah, I absolutely love it. And it says you set up a company to generate funding. How, how, what does that mean exactly? How, how did that, what was that about? Yeah, basically we had, so I set a nonprofit organization up called Gateway Intercultural Services. And okay. I actually did that in Troy, Michigan when I lived in your town. And uh, we still have it here 24 years later. Mm -hmm. And um, that organization, uh, what we actually do is we help uh, organizations that fight human trafficking and rescue their victims. We help them with their marketing. We help them raise funds. And then we actually help raise awareness like I'm trying to do on this podcast. And then we also give money toward trying to help them, you know, in their mission. I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, good. I'm glad we covered that because I think it's, again, the most heinous thing ever, right? Because a lot of these are kids. And and unfortunately, um, and maybe I'm wrong about this, you're in it more than more than me, probably more knowledgeable. But uh, I have heard, and I'm, I'm not surprised necessarily, but that the United States is the biggest customer of this type of activity. Um, that we are one of the bigger offenders of, of the, we're the customer, maybe not the perpetrator necessarily, but we are the customer that they, that they serve. And so I think it's upon us to, you know, to do what we can whenever we can. So thank you. I love it, that. It really is. And I just want to say to people, if you want to get more information about this, um, go to exoduscry.com. Exodus Cry is an organization that's doing a great job making documentaries one is called Nefarious, and that's the one that convinced me to get involved five years ago. Good. Thank you. I'll have that in the show notes, guys. So if you're on a treadmill driving, whatever, we'll have that for you. Okay. Let's talk about this. I, you, ha- I know that for you, it's, it's, it's a big deal for people, executives, entrepreneurs to find their big why. <laughs> that's, that's a weird question. Why? Why, yeah. why find the big why, right? Yeah. So I woke up on October 7th. Uh, 1997 in Troy, Michigan. And I realized, man, I got a couple million dollars in my bank account, but I don't feel that much different than I did yesterday or last week. I was super happy to be in that position. And we were able to actually fund some organizations that we wanted to fund. I was able to get some money to start speculate. I mean, sorry, investing. That was a joke. And um, (laughs) seriously, um, we were... We were very, very grateful. But honestly, I thought, man, if I had to live the rest of my life and that was my only success, I'd feel kind of like, is that all there is? And so what I like to encourage people is to start doing something now, wherever you are at age 20 or 50 or whatever that you want to do to leave a mark on the world for the rest of your life. And if you can start that now and continue that when you really do hit the big time, you will be way ahead that of where you might be if you just wake up one day and feel like, man, is this all there is? Yeah, I, I think yeah, I agree with that, and I think a lot of people too. Part of their problem with feeling unfulfilled, even if they make good money, is to your point, it's like, well, what does this all mean? So like you said, you woke up with a couple of a, million, a couple of million dollars in your bank account, but but for what? And so I think that big why. And and I, I really wanted to ask you about this because it's a drum that I beat for sure a lot. It's it's not only what will get you up in the morning when you're having a hard day or your business, you know, is, is facing challenges, but it also makes you feel 
you know, fulfilled and like you're doing something that makes a difference. And unfortunately, a lot of people start asking themselves, what is this all for? Or they decide, you know, I'm doing all this, but what am I leaving behind that matters? And a lot of times, unfortunately, it happens later in life. But if you, if there's one thing you can take away here, it's figure out what it is that you want to be known for, what you want to create, what you want to leave behind, what's important to you as early as possible. And to your point, start down that path sooner rather than later so that when you can make significant impact in that area of the world or of your life, you have the ability to do that and you know what it is that you want to do. You know, I've never said this on a podcast before because I never thought of it, but George Mueller, the guy I mentioned half an hour ago as my hero, he actually at age 22, I think he figured out what he wanted to be remembered for. He didn't die till he was like 98, I think, hmm. but he actually started documenting every single moment of every day where he was going toward that goal. And he actually has, there's volumes and volumes of handwritten accounts of all the stuff he did that's allowed so many people to write biographies about him. And you're right. He started that when he was in his twenties and when he was 98, he had a rich legacy. Let me tell you. Wow. And that's amazing because that guy's social media account would have been exploding with all that documentation. A a, a voice recorder (laughs) and a a, a cell phone might've really helped him a lot. Save a lot of time. Poor guy. uh, (laughs) Poor guy. Exactly. (laughs) Well, before we get done here, I I know that there's something you want to give away to the audience, uh, a free um, resource. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, man, when I was flipping houses and I I was flipping off and on until really recently. uh, And when I was doing waterfront lots and trying to tighten a doorknob and build a house and all that stuff, I didn't know how to get into commercial real estate. And so I wish somebody would have told me the path. Well, I created that. There's a free resource you can get. And it's a step-by-step guide to get involved in investing in commercial real estate. And you can get that at my website. It's wellingscapital.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S, wellingscapital.com forward slash resources. And there you can actually get a guide to investing in mobile home parks and in self-storage, and then another guide in to investing in commercial real estate. Love it. Thank you for that. Guys, go grab that. We'll Again, we'll have the, the link in our show notes, but it's wellingscapital.com forward slash resources. Go grab that. You cannot beat free. So go, go get it if you're interested in moving into that arena. I know a lot of folks listening are house flippers. And I know also a lot of them are at the very least intrigued about the idea of moving into uh, something uh, bigger. Uh, and some of them are actively trying to do it. So go grab that resource uh, for free. Paul, I just want to say it's been a huge honor to have you on. I know a lot of folks are chasing you down to get your insights and and get you on their show uh, because you have just a wealth of knowledge, uh, things that you have done and seen. And, uh, and you're just a super smart guy with a lot to say that is super helpful. So thank you very, very much for taking the time uh, to be on this little podcast. I really appreciate it. Mike, it was a real honor to be here. I really enjoyed it. And man, anytime you ask me back, I'll be here. Will do. And I will take you up on that. Uh, so thank you for that. I'm, you're on You're on uh, audio saying that. I'm going to play it back for you. If you tell me you don't have time in the future. Um, but no, thanks again. All seriousness. <laughs> uh, I, I appreciate your candor. I appreciate how transparent you were. And uh, the gold bombs uh, that you dropped are, are just amazing. So thank you. Have a great rest of your year. Stay healthy. Stay safe. And I wish you nothing but success in the future. Thanks, Mike. Same here, man. 
Thanks. Bye-bye. Wow. I had a fun time on that interview with Paul. What a smart guy. Um, just very candid too. Just a lot of fun to interview. I don't know if you could feel that in the uh, conversation, but he's just a fun guy to talk to. Good sense of humor and just a wealth of knowledge. Wealth, wealth, wealth of knowledge. And uh, everything he says is based in you know his his experience obviously like anybody I interview but i really really uh got the sense that uh paul's paul's somebody who gives back he wants to help people he really wants to see people succeed and he puts his money where his mouth is he does the kind of investing that he's talking about and uh, i love getting his insight on if he can only invest in one thing right he said that was the best thing he's ever been asked on a podcast and it was interesting he said mobile home parks right so uh we've had people on that talk about that and it's an area that i know not a lot of people are doing it's sort of like this thing that people aren't sure about, but mobile home investing, guys, there you go. That's what he would do if he could only invest in one thing. So if nothing else, I hope that Paul inspired you. Uh, he started off nine to five. It just kind of moved around and figured things out. He didn't know anything about real estate when he started, but he figured it out and he's had nothing but success ever since. And he's weathered the 08, 09, the whole crash and everything. Like he got through it, right? It didn't kill him. It just taught him how to adjust and move forward and how inflation can actually help your business. So hopefully you found that interesting as well. I had a lot of fun, guys. I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. And until next time, get out there, get going, get started. So you have your own success story to talk about someday. All right, we'll talk to you next time.